I've never seen a guy de-age faster than when he got his hair cut and went back to what it was like his sophomore year at Oregon. Is he going to get carded at an R-rated movie? Like, does he have a driver's license? You know, I actually thought I was smart since we're in the middle of a pandemic, needed a haircut. He just did it in-house. Now he picked the wrong person, I think. (laughs) This season of Half Forgotten History, we're partnering with Mercedes-Benz Sprinter Vans. I love the Sprinter van. It's always a smooth ride, whether I'm headed to the course to play around or to the stadium for a really good tailgate. And just like the world-class athletes we talk to on the show, Mercedes-Benz Sprinter vans go the extra mile. Hey everybody, what's up? Trey Wingo here. Welcome into another episode of Half Forgotten History Season 3. We have a draft extravaganza for you today. I think you're going to love it. First and foremost, we're going to talk to Chargers GM Tom Telesco. It was just a year ago he went into the draft sweating about whether or not he could find what he believed would be a franchise quarterback in the draft. All signs are he did just that, taking Justin Herbert in the first round, who was absolutely stellar. So we'll talk to Tom about that process and how different the draft is going into it knowing you have your quarterback as opposed to looking for your quarterback. We'll also talk to my good friend, Ross Tucker. You know Ross from all his work on uh, Westwood One Radio and NFL Games and his podcast, the Ross Tucker Podcast, about some funny draft stories that we both experienced over the years. And Ross's, of course, as a former offensive lineman, will involve copious amounts of eating. We'll get to all of that a little bit later, but first and foremost now, enjoy my conversation with Chargers GM, Tom Telesco. So delighted to be joined now in Half Forgotten History by the Chargers General Manager, Tom Telesco. Uh, Tom, I guess we've had some history doing this virtual stuff before, not only the entire draft last year, but we talked a little bit after day one a year ago. We actually pulled it off. I'll tell you, one of the highlights of the draft was doing the interview with you from my dining room. Uh, <laughs> my kids there. I mean, it's it was surreal uh, to be doing a draft. It's something we put that much work into. I've been part of I've been in a draft room every year since 1995, um, but to do one from home uh, through Zoom, through the internet, through Wi-Fi, and, and uh, the way we did it, and the way everybody did it, and really, I think if you're watching on TV, you wouldn't have known any different that we were all separated, working from home. Uh, we still all got our work done and, and got the draft done, and uh, it went for us, went very, very well. And what's interesting as you go into this year's draft, Tom, is that last year, the presentation of the draft was going to be different. But everything else was the same. We had a full college football season. We had a combine. We had a majority of pro day workouts. And so I honestly believe from an evaluative perspective, it's going to be much more difficult and different this year because we didn't have a full college season. Some guys played 12 games. Some played six. Some opted out that are going to go in the first round. There wasn't a controlled environment of a combine, and we're getting all these amazing 40 times at these pro days, and you have to say, how real are these 40 times? So from the evaluative process, how much more difficult is this year's draft than last year's? It's just a lot different. Like you said, last year, we had, like you said, the full season, the full combine. Um, and about half the pro days, I'd say, um, by about mid-March, and then we had to shut down after that. But um, from our process last year, and we'd already done our scouts meetings, our draft meetings, so last year was more just about how we're going to execute the picks. But as far as our process, it wasn't a lot different. This year, like you said, a lot different. I mean, the college season, um, so many different players played different amounts of games against a different amounts of competition. Um some conferences didn't play at all. Obviously, some some one double A and lower have, are playing right now. Um, right. Not having a combine is a big difference. Um, just with the whole medical process, which is the behind the scenes part of the draft that nobody sees, but is a huge part of what we do as we're trying to make decisions on players. Because you know, four years of high school football, three to four years of college football, you know, there's going to be injuries, um, and, and we have to kind of go through that. So this is a different experience as far as how we're going to handle that. Um, the interview process is different. Um, I wouldn't say it's any worse or better. It's just different. We're, we're doing it by Zoom um, from our buildings, not at the Combine. Um, I don't see a big difference there. And then really the pro days right now are functioning as our individual Combines as far as how we get all the measurables, the height, weight, speeds, the verticals, the broad jump. We're going to get most of the information we usually do. We're going to get it a different way. Um, in the, in this, this past fall, our scouts were, were home um, basically the whole fall doing all tape work, but couldn't see a practice. Um, 
They saw a couple live games, but not nearly as many as they used to. We'll have all the information we usually have. We just had to kind of accumulate it a different way. But but the idea of the lack of control, I think, is the, the interesting thing, right? Because we're all creatures of habit, right? And and we want to be – that's why everyone makes a big deal when a top pick doesn't go to the combine or doesn't work out because you want to see him in an environment where you know the field is set at 40 yards and not 38, where, where you know everything is the way it's supposed to be. So how much of that – not having the control as a team or an evaluator on a team, uh, is, is that sort of putting a little bit more uncertainty into all of this? You have to make adjustments for it. That's why we're lucky that our, our scouts are at each of these pro days so they can, you know, I mean, they'll get out, they'll measure that 40 to make sure it's 40 yards. We'll have a watch on that 40 to make sure it's, it's our time and not somebody else's. And, but we have to make a, you know, pretty good look at what the surfaces they're running on. Like you said, a lot of these times seem like they're awful fast. Suddenly um, everybody's a burner. It's kind of crazy, Tom, right now. <laughs> you know what, if, if you go back when I started doing this, and when the combine was at the, the Hoosier Dome, the RCA Dome, and it was that right. hard old AstroTurf, at the different pro days when not everybody had field turf, or they, there wasn't field turf then. So we had uh, a hard AstroTurf players would run a, a 40 on, um, a tartan track, um, a basketball court sometimes, sometimes a grass field, and sometimes there was a fast grass or a slow grass. So we would adjust a lot of the 40 times as they came in based on what the scout felt like the surface was. Now, very subjective. You know, fast surface, slow surface, and then how fast or how slow. We try and convert everything to what they would have run at the Indy Combine. Um, not easier said than done, but we would try. And we have to do a little bit of that this year is what type of surface are these players running on? So we can try and get a little more apples to apples. We're never going to get there this year, right? Uh, but as close as we can get. Are there certain places where, like, you know, they're notoriously always a couple of a tenths of a second or hundreds of a second faster than almost any other place? Well, there, there used to be, um, I'm not out as many pro days as I used to, but when I was an area scout, I mean, when you went to Penn state, it was, it was downhill. There's no doubt about it. It was, and they had a ton of fast times at their pro day this year. They sure did, but they don't have that issue anymore. I know at, at Clemson, they used to run on the indoor uh, track around the, uh, the old basketball field house. And that was real, very, very fast. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's kind of, as a scout, you have to use your eyes and that's very subjective. And with 40 times, at least with me, um, I'm not too concerned, you know, was a 4-4-2, was a 4-4-6, was a 4-4-7. Depending on the position, are they fast enough or are they not fast enough? That's kind of what it is. I'm, I don't, let's just get us in the right ballpark. We'll be fine. Well, it's interesting you bring up 40 time because our mutual friend, Daniel Jeremiah, who does a great job with you guys calling games and also on his, uh, for the NFL Network and his Move the Sticks podcast, you know, he, he floated something out there not too long ago, which I thought was interesting. He said he thinks we're a couple of years away from a 40 time not being a measurable statistic anymore. Where are you on, on that process? Um, I'm hoping it, it always is, but yeah, we, there are some different ways we've, we've been using t, uh, speed. And I started last year, probably the most I've used it um, just as far as the player tracking data that we receive um, this year, I probably have more than I've ever had before, but I still need years of, of context and, and trying to see what, what works, what doesn't, what's real, what isn't, even though, I've been in this league for 20, I guess, 25 years. I'm still a little bit old school. I still like to have that 40 time if I can have it. Uh, but there's no doubt with, 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 the, with the GPS tracking, with, with the max mile, mile per hour speeds that we have from practices, from games, um, it's just another cross check for us. And maybe it turns into someday that we use that because those are times on grass or on field turf while they're playing right. football with the helmet short pads on. And maybe that's more useful than a 40 time in shorts and a t-shirt. We could get there at some point. Um, we'll see. Right. You, so we'll put you decidedly in the old school column for the moment, for the moment. And maybe maybe technology uh, will win you over. Last year, I had to use that a lot more because uh, the second, you know, this I say the second half of March, all of a sudden, a lot of pro days we're supposed to go to, we couldn't get to. So we didn't have 40 times on as many players as we usually did. So I had to use a lot of the miles per hour um, times that we had. And uh, it wasn't bad. And I'll probably get more used to it as we move on here. The thing that's really interesting about this year, though, is is the amount of players that are scheduled or believed to be going in the top half of the first round or definitely in the first round that opted out of playing in, in 2020. And I understand why any kid said, look, I, I, I don't want to have any issues. I don't want to get it. I don't want to have any you know, myocarditis and anything going forward. And it's think it's just safer for me to not play this year. But then we have a really interesting question, like a guy like Slater, the, the offensive lineman from Northwestern, hasn't played football in a year. 
How is he going to be? The evaluative process there. And then you have the kid out of Miami, Rousseau, the, the edge rusher, who played one year of high-level college football and did very well, but took the year off and really was a high school quarterback and tight end. So how much data can you pull from that one year and then add in the year off and factor that into what you're projecting him to be at the highest level of football. We can only take the information we have and the video we have and, and, and make those projections moving forward. Um, there's just nothing you can do about it. And maybe this is turning in a little bit of the NBA draft where they're really projecting forward. And even if you talk about how, how baseball drafts where they're, they're drafting high school players, they have to project so many years down the road. I always think that they have a much harder job than we do. Um, but yeah, there, there's there's some different players with different bodies of work. I, I've never seen a draft. I've never seen a draft that had more players with just one year of yeah. of uh, college playing um, background. Just haven't seen it before. But uh, it's part of our job to project forward with these players. And um, you know, we'll just like I said, there's different ways to do it, and that's what we'll do this year. Is it in one way sort of helpful knowing that there's one year less wear and tear because a lot of these guys, as you said, three or four years of high school football three, four years of college football, the injuries are going to pile up. So maybe the plus side to this is there's going to be a lot less uh, tread off the tires from a lot of these guys. You know, the old joke at some schools, you'll, you'll leave with a title and a surgery. And, and a lot of places that might not be the case anymore. I mean, I guess that's one way to look at it. But it's also, you know, you lose a year of development and practicing and playing football and just, you know, not only the on the field, but the off the field, being in the meetings every day, just learning your position. Um, that, that's a big part of really of any job, not just playing football is, is, is practice and repetition. And, and you, you can't get that just by working out at, at, uh, at Exos for a year, you know, yeah. you need that hands-on work, you know, that was each person's uh, decision, but you know, I don't, I don't even think about, you know, is it right? Is it wrong? You know, we'll just take the, the information we have and make the best decision we can. Yeah. I've, I've heard some former coaches and I don't want to name names here, but some say, well, you know, a kid like Jamar Chase, he was, you know, he, they gave him the seven jersey, which was a big deal at LSU. And then he opted out. And I want to know, do they have a falling out with the coaches or whatever? And I'm thinking to myself, he just didn't want to get COVID. Like, I, I don't think that that Jamar Chase opting out is going to hurt his draft status, right? I mean, I, I just, I don't put myself in their shoes and think about what yeah. I would do and tell them to do. I mean, I just, I just don't work in that world at all. So, you know, we, we do all the same work we do. We do our research. We talk to their coach. We talk to different people around the program. We talk to the player. You know, we look at the film, you know, we get as much data as we can in this, this, you know, this, this post uh, postseason work and make a decision. But uh, look, everybody's, you know, these are all players. They're not just, they're not just football players with a helmet on. They all have their different right. lives. They have their families, they have their beliefs. And, 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 and we're fine with that. Well, I'm glad you said that because I think so many times fans, and I, I tried to do this when I was doing the draft, fans look at, okay, we had a thing. Like we had a tight end in Hunter Henry. A tight end is gone. Now we need to find another tight end. And they don't factor in, oh, wait, there's an actual living, breathing human like under there, right? It's like when you're a kid and you see your teacher at the mall and you're like, you shouldn't be here. You're at the school. Like that's where you live. I think people need to understand what you just talked about. There are a whole number of factors that go into a lot of these decisions for these kids. And they really are kids. Yeah. And, and there are some of the best football players in the world. And, uh, and, Every year at the combine, they the um, they'll bring different GMs to talk to different position groups about what the combine, what it's about, what they're here for. And one thing I tell them, which is hard nowadays, is look, everything that's said about you in the media, ESPN, all these different networks, look, it's really just for entertainment purposes. You know, just turn it off. You know, you had a great college career. If you didn't have a great college career and didn't have a chance to be an NFL player, you wouldn't even be at the combine right now. Yeah. Um, so it, it bothers me to hear people, you know, breaking down different players' games and talking about the negatives of it. You know, I just don't think that's for public consumption, but it is what it is. A part of it is the, is the entertainment business. But yes, these are all, they're all real human beings. They're, they're not just assets we bring in. They're not just football players. Um, but we also know this business we work in, it's, it's, uh, it's public. Everything we do is yeah. public. Every decision I make, good and bad, is, is, is critiqued everywhere. And same with players. You, you make a play on a Sunday, you, you know, you get beat, everybody sees it. But um, now, this is it's a difficult world to jump into. Um, but for most of these kids, you played a power five school. They're kind of used to the environment. Um, and they're certainly used to this today's environment with with all the scrutiny that's out there. And that brings me to another question, because I'm trying to figure out from my perspective, having done this for 20 plus years, the value of a pro day. And I think it's a sliding scale. Right. Um, 
for a kid like the, the the defensive lineman out of Louisiana, like Milton Williams, I think is his name. That pro day matters to him. Like one of my best friends at ESPN all those years was Mark Schlereth. He needed a pro day to show that he could actually do this. But like, I, I hear people say, oh, that was the throw of the pro day season from Zach Wilson. And I'm just like, you have like all these game tapes to watch of Zach Wilson. Like, I don't understand the value of a pro day for a, a Zach Wilson or or a, a Trevor Lawrence or even a Justin Fields who, who smoked his 40 time apparently. You know, four, four, three, four, four, four is what I'm hearing. I, I just it bothers me when people say, well, it's his job to lose when they go into the pro day. If you're deciding on a pro day, I think you should have a different line of work for these guys, right? It's, I mean, I get it if you're, if you're somebody else that's not in a power five and you ha- don't have all those tapes on there. But for these guys, the pro day seems to me, as you just said, part of the process and the entertainment at times. Yeah, I mean, it's part of the process, but it's not nearly the biggest part of the process. And everybody has different opinions on it. If you ask 32 different GMs, we're all going to have different opinions on it. Um, I'm not a big pro day guy. I never have been. That's why I love you, Tommy. Um, now, I, I'll say there are certain parts of the pro day. Like, I like I want you know the height, weight. Um, I want you know the the ten time, the forty time. I want all those measurable numbers. But when it comes to the actual position workout, um, I just I'm not a huge believer in it unless there's specific reasons. You know, maybe it's a defensive end you're projecting outside linebacker. We'd like to see him move around a little bit. But um, you know we've watched one year, two years, three years of, of football, playing football. So say you're looking at an offensive lineman and for me, watching him in shorts and a t-shirt pull and run around a cone and then hit a pad, I just I don't get a lot out of it. I don't. So yeah. um, it's a very small part of the process. Um, but the the measurable part, if you weren't at the combine, that that is important. It is an important part of it. But the positional workout to me, um, you know, like like last year, just, Justin Herbert's pro day. I, I can't even remember how we threw it at the pro day. I'm sure I watched it on tape, but it wasn't a big part of the, the process for us. And there's risk, right? I mean, there was that cornerback out of Washington, Sidney Jones, a couple of years ago, just doing a backpedal and tore his Achilles and went from being arguably the first cornerback off the board. I think he went 48th overall. And that sure. we're talking millions of dollars. And people say, oh, well, if he plays well, he'll get another contract. Well, yeah, but that doesn't mean he gets to replace the money he lost because he went from potentially a top 10 pick to 48. I've seen him backpedal covering receivers in the Pac-12 for a number of years. So I didn't need to see him with the pro day. But like I said, my, my, that's my opinion. A lot of other people yeah. feel differently. So, all right. Well, you mentioned Justin Herbert. Uh, why don't we take a quick break here? When we come back, we'll talk about the luxury of going into a draft, knowing you've gotten your guy, and how, quite frankly, all of us may have gotten it wrong when it came to Justin Herbert uh, last year. Stick with us. We're coming right back. This episode is brought to you by Mercedes-Benz Sprinter vans with options like blind spot assist and active lane keeping assist plus MBUX voice command technology for directions, weather forecasts, comfort control, and more. Mercedes-Benz can be ready to go the extra mile. I use it every time I head to the golf course. The handling is amazing, the ride is smooth, and trust me, you never run out of space. Thanks again to Mercedes-Benz Sprinter Vans. All right, back with Chargers GM Tom Telesco. Uh, talking about the upcoming experience here. We're appreciating him going the extra mile with us as we go the extra mile courtesy of our Mercedes-Benz Sprinter vans. There was all this talk about Justin Herbert going into the draft. Some people loved him. Some people had all kinds of questions. When did you, through your evaluative process last year, know if he's available, that's the guy we're targeting? We thought he may declare for the draft the year before. Uh, So we, we had done, I mean, like every year, you know, you do the work in all the positions, did a lot of work on the quarterbacks. We thought there was a chance he would declare. Our scouts did a lot of work on him and then he ended up not declaring for the draft. Lucky for us, we weren't picking that high that year. Um, and lucky for us that the year he came out, we were picking higher. So our scouts had him very, very high uh, his junior year. Um, and then senior year, a lot of the same. I know for, for me personally, I went to the Rose Bowl, which is obviously easy for me to do here in Southern California. When I walked out of that game, that I was just thinking, this this is the guy that you want to build your offense around. And I think our scouts had probably knew that two years before. Uh, but I know for me, you know, coming out of that Rose Bowl game, seeing how he played for four quarters and how he led his team to to uh, to win that game is, you know, for me was like, hey, look, this this is the guy. And I remember doing the research last year. You heard all the knocks. Well, he's an introvert. Well, he's really into, you know, being a doctor and having good grades. Like, you know. 
that's a bad thing that you should have a post career when you want to do it. But like when you heard those sort of subtle things that were like, I'm not so sure, like, did you guys just laugh them off or did you say to yourself, Hey, we've already done that. We know that's not an issue for us. Yeah. I mean, we, we tend to, we, we all kind of nitpick everything. Um, we have great scouts here. We really do. And they're, they're not only they good talent evaluators, but they're great on getting information on the players and, and they know the right people to talk to. Um, you know, people that have known the player for a number of years and maybe all, all the way back to, uh, you know, who recruited them. So we feel like we get a good feel for the players. Um, and look, there's no perfect prospects out there. And certainly as quarterbacks, which is, it was hard for us, you know, when we had Phillip Rivers all those years and we're comparing all these college quarterbacks coming out, we're like, look, this, this guy's not Phillip. This guy's not Phillip. We're like, look, nobody's going to be Phillip Rivers. So let's, let's not, you know, Unless we have the first pick of the draft, and you're taking Andrew Luck. You know, they, they all have some some holes somewhere. No, I mean, we, we got to know, you know, Justin a little bit through the interview process. I mean, it's not perfect, you know, by any means, you know, these 15-minute combine interviews or even talking right. to people at All-Star Games. But you talk to enough people that have been around him and know him well. Um, you know, we had no issues with with the – I mean, we love the intangibles. I mean, he's smart. Um, he's a leader, which which we saw in college and I've seen here. Um, he's an incredible teammate, and, and he's which is why he's going to be a great leader. It's hard for young players to come in as a rookie and lead a football team. You know, they're, they're so young, you know, 21 years old, and you have a bunch of adults in the locker room. Um, but I will say last year, um, when our players saw he could play, uh, since we had no preseason games to see him in, and we never, our right. players never saw him live until that Kansas City game. When they saw he could play, play, pretty easy for him to lead at that point. That Kansas City game was remarkable, right? Like, to me, uh, that was like the peak of what – you have to defend against with not only uh, Justin, but with with Mahomes in that game. That throw to Tyreek, I'm sure, still drives you crazy. But like that that game was nuts. But for him to do that against them, I, I thought was a was a really interesting sort of okay. These are the champs, and everyone knows they're coming after him. This kid has no fear whatsoever. I think not only that he could play, but he played that well against them. That had to really sit well with the veterans in the locker room. Such an interesting situation. I actually want to kind of go back and watch the TV copy of the game because. You know, with, with what happened with, with Terod Taylor, I mean, the first, I mean, I was kind of watching the first series, but I really wasn't paying attention because we were trying to figure out what was going on with Terod. I was more concerned about what was going on with him. Everything just happened so quickly. Um, so I kind of missed the first series. And then all of a sudden, Justin's running into the end zone. We're up 7 nothing, And you're trying to process everything. And then uh, just to see the way he handled the rest of the game, it was, it was, it was amazing. I mean, he... He, he rolled out to his right. He took a huge hit from one of their yep. linebackers, um, but he also gave a big hit. And uh, he just got up, stepped over the player, and walked back to the huddle, and I was right on our sidelines. And uh, to me, that was a key moment, too, because, like I said, um, his teammates and his coaches, you know, including the head coach, hadn't seen him play live ever. Um, you know, no live snaps in, in, in practice. Obviously, you're not going to hit the quarterback. Um, no preseason games. Um, so when, when you start to see that, you see him drive the team down the field. Um, you see, him, you see how, he ha- how he handles mistakes and handles adversity on the sidelines with the coaches. Um, and to see his comments after the game that he like, you know, I had, that was fun. Like I had fun out yeah. there. Like, that's great to hear. We, we lost, um, but, but he had fun and, and he handled that situation. I mean, remarkably mature. So, um, and then just, just built on that, to, you know, throughout the whole season. Clearly you guys nailed it. Right. That there, I don't think there's any question. Look, obviously, things can change from year to year, but you have to feel very strongly like we've got our guy going forward. And, and you guys did your due diligence and you said those intangibles didn't bother you. But I just want to read to you uh, the top uh, since since 2000, there have been uh, 15 quarterbacks taken number one overall. Here's the list. Michael Vick, David Carr, Carson Palmer, Eli Manning, Alex Smith, Jamarcus Russell, Matthew Stafford, Sam Bradford, Cam Newton, Andrew Luck, Jameis Winston, Jared Goff, Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray, and Joey Burrow. I bring that up just – that's just the number one overall pick, let alone first-round picks. The hit rate for quarterbacks in the first round is about 50%. And, you know, so many players that were drafted – from 2015 on in the first round or in the top half of the first round are no longer with their teams. Some of them are starting somewhere else. Some of them are backups and some of them are looking for work as late as 2017 in Mitchell Trubisky. So it's, it's the most inexact science there is, right? How, 
how do you get to to be secure knowing you 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 think you figured it out as you guys did with Justin? You know, the hit rate at all positions in the first rounds like 52, 53% and quarterbacks are right around 50. Um but, but look, I mean, you could sit there every single year and pick a quarterback apart or any player and never take them. But at some point you get in the better box and swing. So um you know, we you know, you have a profile of what you're looking for say in a quarterback um, you know, we're looking for a quarterback that obviously had all the intangibles that we wanted because, you know, he has to lead. He's going to be the face of the franchise. Um, he's got to be smart, got to be driven, have work ethic. He's got to be the hardest working guy in the building because everybody will kind of follow behind that. But we really wanted a mobile athletic quarterback that uh, if things break down, he can make a play with his feet. You know, not necessarily run the zone read all the time, um, but to be a threat to do it and be, to be a threat outside the pocket. Um, and he has all that. So we went through and, you know, we just was checking off all the boxes, all the intangibles, all the physical skills. Um, you know, he's big and he's athletic and he's got a big arm and a quick release. And, but we also knew like every college player, not just Justin, not just quarterbacks, there is some development once, once you get here. And that's what we have coaches for. And that's what we have to coach and develop. Um, you know, I heard the criticism a lot that, that, well, you know, he wasn't allowed to do a lot at Oregon. Well, guess what? Oregon won a lot of games while he was there, and he won a lot right. of games. And he threw a lot of touchdown passes, and he didn't turn the ball over. I mean, Oregon did what they were supposed to do. I mean, all college college coaches, they're, they're supposed to graduate their players and win, and right. they did that at Oregon. The fact that they may not run the same offense as we do it didn't mean anything to us. I mean, in this day of digital video, we can go through and sort out. We can take out all the bubble screens and just sort them all out and just pull up, hey, I want to watch all the, the, all the third and eight-plus um, where he's throwing the ball downfield or all the, all the plays where he's got movement to his left or to his right. And, and, you know, you, you put the whole puzzle together and you get in the bottom, in a better box and you swing. If you miss, you miss, you come back and do it again. But, uh, you know, he just checked off too many boxes for us. It absolutely worked. And it's going to be interesting. I always give like four or five years, right? And we need four or five years to fully see whether or not this draft class and this guy drafted is going to be great. Because I love people like when they make a trade now and the Dolphins have made a big splash before the draft. Oh, they clearly, you know, they won this. Well, it all depends on who they pick, right? I know I can't get you talking bad about a division rival, but like the Raiders had a lot of picks for Khalil Mack and Amari Cooper and not a lot of hits. So you know, we'll talk in a little while about, about who wins these kind of scenarios. But Justin won memes for a while this year. Like I, I've never seen a guy de-age faster than when he got his hair cut. And went back to what it was like his sophomore year at Oregon. Like literally, I, I, I thought, is he going to get carded at an R-rated movie? Like, does he have a driver's license? How much? How much of grief was he getting from the from the guys in the locker room after that haircut? You know, I actually thought I was smart since we're in the middle of a pandemic. Needed a haircut. He just did it in house. Now he, he picked the wrong person, <laughs> I think. Um, but uh, yeah, that was it. Was a big discussion at the dinner table in our household about his haircut and should he have done it? Should he not have done it? Um, I think in Justin's mind, it was just like a shrug of the shoulders. Like, yeah, I need a haircut. You know, had our strength coach do it. Maybe not the best decision he made this year. Uh, but uh, if that's the worst decision he made this year, I think we're doing okay. As a barber, his barber makes a tremendous strength coach. I think that's the way to look at that entire scenario. So knowing that you have your guy now, and it, because let's be honest, you got to have a dude. Like, there's no question about that. The way the game is played and officiated, you've got to have a quarterback that can sling it all over the field. But we also saw in the Super Bowl, like you could have someone as good as Mahomes, and if you can't protect him and do all those other things, it doesn't matter. But how much of a relief is it for you knowing going into this draft, okay, we've got our guy, now we just got to build around him? I'll be honest, it, it is a little bit of a relief. I mean, I, when I took the job here in 2013, uh, Philip was still playing at a high level. But I also knew we, we have to have a plan for the next quarterback. And the hope was that it would be an overlap where we take a quarterback at some point and he can learn from Phillip and then eventually take over. And if Phillip just keeps playing, then that, that, that quarterback will sit. So we did a lot of work every year. It just seemed like we could never find the right guy at the right spot that we felt good about. Um, but it was always in the back of my mind. I mean, as a general manager, you have to have a long-term vision, but a short-term strategy and so it's always, I'm always thinking down the road, what are we going to do? And obviously quarterback's a very important spot. So uh, we got very lucky that timed up the way it did, but yeah, to have Justin here to continue to build around him right now is, 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 is nice to know now, but we still have a lot of other work to do. Um, like you said, protect them on offense, make sure there's weapons to hand it off to and throw to, and then make sure our defense is strong enough to get the ball back. 
Um, you know, it's, it's a team game. I mean, you just, you can't win with just a quarterback. I think that's been shown, um, you know, as good as, as Patrick Mahomes is, he has a great team around him and a great coaching yeah. staff. So that's what we have to continue. We have to keep building around that. And that's, that's the plan. I'm glad you said that because it's one thing you could have all the physical gifts, but if you don't go to a place that knows how to use those gifts and apply those gifts into a system, like I laughed when they drafted Mahomes because I knew that the way Andy and Eric ran that system, it would be perfect for him. And I, I knew when they took Edwards Alaire in the end of the first round last year, I was like, literally, that's a perfect guy to go into the system and do what they want to do. So as you go into this year's draft, what are your priorities? It's funny. You said you laughed when they took those guys. I wasn't laughing. <laughs> <laughs> different perspective, different perspective. This different perspective is right. No, we're, we're just trying to, like I said, we're just trying to build around now that we've got, you know, a new scheme on offense, new scheme on defense. So that, that's been a, a big difference right now. So, you know, we've had probably more roster turnover this year than usual. Um, yeah. That's normal with a new head coach and really all new coaching staffs on offense and defense. You know, I think our defensive line coach, Giff Smith, is, is a holdover from the last staff who's an excellent coach, but, you know, almost everybody's new. So now it's about, we're looking and finding players looking through their eyes as far as what's going to fit in the scheme. Um, like on, on offense, it's like, it's going to be, you know, got to protect the quarterback and make sure there's enough weapons that he can throw to and hand it off to. Um, and then defense is going to change um, a good amount, uh, but it's fun. It's, it's been fun to scout for. Uh, Brandon Staley has a great eye just being around him the last couple of months. He has a great eye for talent, um, which makes my job a heck of a lot easier. Um, as we talk about different players, how they're going to fit. Because I think the biggest thing, certainly in the draft, because um, there's so many good players, is trying to find the guys that fit what you want to do. And there may be a player right. that's very talented, is a great college player, but may not fit the exact scheme that we're playing. And, you, you know, you have to talk it through. And if you pass over a good player and somebody drafts them higher, then, then, then so be it. we gotta, we got to find the guys that fit what we want to do on both sides of the ball. And that's something that so many people don't understand. You're looking for for – translatable traits like people always look at highlights well that's wonderful but you know if there's not anybody pressing him nobody's around him of course that guy's going to be open are there traits that translate to what you want to do in the next level and that, that's a big part of the draft process it's also going to be a very interesting year going forward as we've got a 17 game schedule now so why don't we take our last break here when we come back because we don't want to take too much of tom's time uh, we'll come back and get his thoughts on how this season's going to play out a little different with a 17th regular season game we're coming right back you know, for a lot of people, the draft is the most exciting day of the season, and for others, it's a chance to build on last year's success. But whether your team has the first pick or the last, DraftKings Sportsbook is bringing the excitement to you. DraftKings Sportsbook, as you know, America's top-rated sportsbook app, is adding to the thrill of the draft with a chance to turn $1 into $100 in free bets if a quarterback is drafted first overall on Thursday night. Good chance that's going to happen. Turning $1 into $100 in free bets is simple. All you got to do is place a wager on any draft day outcome and you'll be eligible to win $100 in free bets if a quarterback is selected first on Thursday night. Think you know what your team is going to do in this year's draft? Put your money where your mouth is and bet on it with DraftKings Sportsbook. There are a number of ways to take action on the draft, so head to the app now and see what DraftKings Sportsbook is offering for Thursday night. Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use the code WINGO when you sign up for a chance to turn $1 into $100 in free bets. That's right. DraftKings Sportsbook is letting you turn $1 into $100 worth of free bets if a quarterback is selected first overall this Thursday night. Don't forget, enter the code WINGO during sign-up only at DraftKings Sportsbook. New Jersey, Indiana, or West Virginia only. New customers only. Winnings paid out in free bets. Restrictions do apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. And if you have a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Again, back with Tom Telesco, the Chargers GM since 2013 on this episode of Half Forgotten History. So the news out there now is that there will be a 17-game regular season. I think we all thought this was coming when the new CBA was ratified. It was in there that they had the right to do it. So, of course, they were going to do it. But from your perspective in team planning, because obviously we're talking now about less preseason uh, and more injuries potentially, how does a 17th game season affect how you want to build a team? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure about the more injury thing yet. I mean, we'll see how this plays out. I mean, just adding one game at the potential, end. Potential, potential. Sorry, I should have said that way, yeah. I mean, if you're a team that goes to the playoffs every year, you're playing at least 17 games. So, um, you know, it, it could change our planning of how, uh, how we handle December um, having that extra game. Um, I've been more focused actually more on the preseason right now 
going to three games. Um, obviously, last year we had no preseason games. Yeah. Um, it's funny when I when I started in this job, I, I felt like we needed four preseason games. We we need the we need the live reps. We can pick the team. The fourth game's important. Um, the last couple of years, I've I've totally changed from that. Like you know, three is fine. We could probably even do two if we had to. Um, but I've been more looking at the preseason how we're going to handle that this year. Um, are we going to you do combined practices? How many teams will we do it with? For how many days? What exactly do we want to work on? And then. How are we going to have our starter reps in three preseason games? How do we want to handle that? that that's all brand new um, and how we're going to do that in training camp. Um, haven't given too much thought to that last 17th game of the year, but, you know, that could change some planning in December. Um, certainly for players coming off injured reserve that were designated to return, get a little extra runway there. Um, that will, will depend on your record, but um, I'm glad I'm glad we're going to three preseason games. I think four was kind of outdated. Um, it was probably some extra work and, and actually, you know, some extra injuries that fourth preseason game that we can avoid yeah. right now and give us that break between the last preseason game and the first regular season game. So if you do have some soft tissue injuries to some players, you got an extra week to kind of get guys ready for that opener. It is interesting because I was always of the opinion that there are a lot of careers that were made by those third and fourth preseason games. Victor Cruz comes to mind. Austin Eckler with you guys, who, by the way, as I've tweeted before, he's my spirit animal. Um, you know, though he got a career because of those reps in those preseason games. So how do you how do you adjust that? Because you 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 know you're going to have less of that. And how much adjustment is the whole offseason going to need to change because of the 17th game and the lack of that other preseason game? Well, I think in the preseason you just got to slide all the reps up. Um, you know, we have to decide how much we want to work our starters in the preseason. Um, that's been a little less and less over the years. So. Those reps in the fourth preseason game, they'll come in the third preseason game. So, um, but but you know, but Austin also also uh, Austin Eckler, you know, he also made a name for himself. We had a combined practice with the Saints, and uh, he stood out those two days too. So it wasn't just the fourth preseason game; like he really showed out in, in that competition. And those those combined practices for us were just as valuable, probably more valuable than preseason games. Working with a team like the Saints with Sean Payton. Sure where you can, there's some control to it. So if you do have some injuries at a certain position group, you can either cut something out, you can lower the reps, you can, you can fix the tempo, however you want to do it. You can work on special situations. And obviously once, once you play in a real preseason game, you can't control the situations all the time. So that's going to take some work in the preseason, trying to figure all that out. Um, but uh, I'm all for it. I understand the business of it, right? Because TV rights are going to want to broadcast those games, but I was kind of surprised that preseason was going to stick around anyway, because we, you know, we, we, had, as you said, we had no OTAs, we had no mini camps. We had none of that this past year. And there was limited contact in training camps heading into 2020. And quite frankly, with no preseason games, I thought the quality of football was about what I normally would see. I'd agree. I, I thought maybe the first couple of weeks of the regular season would be sloppy. Um, I didn't see that. I didn't see any, any more penalties than the usual. Um, I haven't gone back and look at the injury rates the first month as compared to the year before. Um, I know some star players got hurt, so it made it seem yeah. like there were more, but the, the real quick numbers that I saw at the time, they were about the same as they usually were just that some of the names were big. So I thought every team did a great job last year with what we were given. Um, but we still like some of that live preseason work. Yeah, I know people don't like, you know, going to watching preseason games, but for a lot of these guys, this is their chance to try and make a football team. So even though the, the one loss record doesn't mean a whole lot in the preseason, it means a lot to the players to trying to show people what they can do. Well, as Mark Schlereth again said for many years, it may not count, but it matters. And, and the things that happen in those games matters. And speaking of matters, uh, we'll, we'll leave you with this. You guys opened up a brand new stadium last year and zero fans were in attendance. Roger Goodell, the commissioner, making the announcement now that the idea is to bring fans back and be ready to go in 2021. What will it mean for you guys to finally have fans at that uh, palace at SoFi Stadium? Because it, it, it is a marvel and it had to be just so bizarre last year. Yeah, that was part of the worst part of last year is, is all these stadiums where you just, you know, it's, it's empty. And I know that our, for our opener was at Cincinnati. Um, and it was just surreal that we're sitting upstairs and you can hear the pads pop and you can hear the whistles, yeah. you can hear officials talking to players. And I felt like I was at a, at a high school scrimmage, you know, with a lot better players, but it was, <laughs> it was just different. Um, and, you know, we got used to it as the year went on, but um, there's just no substitute for that, that buzz and pregame when he walked out there and, and, and pregame warmups and, 
you know, players celebrating. And um, I mean, this is, you know, the game is exciting for the fans. It's exciting to have them in the building. Um, I thought that the networks did a great job as far as, you know, producing the games where, I mean, I yeah. watched games on TV. I still felt the same way. You know, when I watched the NCAA tournament and I watched NBA games and I love basketball, but it doesn't feel the same to me without fans in the no. crowd. But our games, for whatever reason, they felt the same. But um, at least for, for us locally, um, to have our fans get a chance to come in and see the stadium, watch us play live. Um, you know, I think we've got a, a fun group of guys, an exciting group of guys um, in, a, in a stadium that is like no other. Um, so to finally get people in to see it, um, you know, it's been a long time coming for a lot of Charger fans. Uh, it'll be great. So we'll see what happens when the regular season rolls around. We'll see what happens when the draft rolls around. You nailed it last year. Don't screw it up this year, okay? All right. Sounds good. We got to do an interview after we're afterwards too. So done. Right? You, 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 you let me know and we'll make that happen. Tom okay. Telesco, always good to talk to you, my friend. Be well. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. So thanks again to Chargers GM Tom Telesco. We'll see how he does in building a team around Justin Herbert, the quarterback that they took in the first round a year ago. But up next, my conversation with Ross Tucker. I worked with Ross a couple of times when he was at ESPN for a brief time period. But Ross had an amazing NFL career, six years, and he wasn't drafted. But he still has an amazing story about draft weekend when he was signed by a team. Ross, I always find that draft week is interesting because... The way I describe the draft, it's the only true reality television show that exists, right? Every other reality TV show isn't real because you know the cameras are everywhere and you you pander to the camera. None of us have a clue as to what's going to unfold Thursday night, which is why I think it's so intriguing. Yeah, no, there's no question about it, Trey. And there's a lot of different funny aspects of it, for sure. You know, one of which to me is just it combines all my favorite things, right? Like it combines college football, which I love. It combines the NFL, obviously. And I always kind of liked the draft process, picking players. I was always more intrigued by that side of the business than the coaching. Now, I decided to not get into either one, Trey, because I decided, you know, if you're 28 years old and you went to Princeton, you've already been fired five times. You probably <laughs> shouldn't push the limit on getting fired more often than that. So I, I tried to go to the route of somewhere where I – I could live where I wanted to live and not get fired as opposed to front office or coaching. But no, it combines all of the coolest things. I, I, you know, I, I remember I grew, up, I grew up loving the draft. I can remember even like when I was in college and uh, I, I distinctly remember this, Trey. And you might have been doing the draft back then. I don't remember. I distinctly remember we would have like practice, you know, Saturday morning. Then we would each get like a 30 pack of beer and we would just sit there on Saturday yep. in our dorm room and just watch the draft. It's so funny because I always tell this to Booger McFarland. I think I was a sophomore in college, Trey, and they showed the Booger McFarland highlights. And he's like chasing down SEC running back sideline yeah. to sideline. And I remember thinking, well, yeah, that's I'm not going to be a pro football player. Like that's not going <laughs> to happen for me. Like there like I can never block guys like that. So Booger and I always laugh about that because seeing some of the highlights of these guys, these monsters, I remember thinking, yeah, probably not going to happen for me. I'm going to accept the job on Wall Street. That fortunately, thankfully it did, but uh, I just, I love the highlight clips of the best players. The only thing, sadly, I remember from Booger McFarland's draft day was the horrendous short sleeve suit he chose to wear. But that's a whole separate <laughs> entity that literally it was a suit with short sleeves. And I, I will always give him as much grief as humanly possible about that. Uh, look, the draft is full of blunders and mistakes. The Vikings infamously passed once on their pick because they couldn't get their pick in on time. Uh, there's all kinds of mistakes. But the beauty of the draft to me is that nobody is right on draft night. Like, everyone believes they're correct. Like, the Bears in 2017 were 100% sure they had drafted the best quarterback when they traded a first-round pick to move up one slot to get Mitch Trubisky when Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson were there for the taking. That's a separate story. But the beauty of it is it's instant gratification, but long-term knowledge. Like, we all feel good about the pick or we hate the pick, but we won't know really whether it's a good pick or a bad pick for a minimum of three to four years. Trey, that is totally factually incorrect, okay? Let me tell you, let me tell you the exact I disagree. for whether or not it was a good pick in the court of public opinion, okay? Number one, D 
did my team take a guy at the position where I wanted them to take him? Yes, then there's a chance. No, then it's a bad pick. Number two, did I see that guy in multiple mock drafts I read that week getting drafted higher than where my team got him? Yes, then it's a great pick. If, if they get a guy that the fans have seen in a mock draft taken higher and at a position you want them to take, it's a great pick. If it's not the position you wanted your team to take a guy or you didn't see him going that high in mock drafts, it's a terrible pick, fire the GM. That is the fan reaction formula. And this is why we need to alert them and educate them because those are horrible takes <laughs> and horrible positions. For example, everyone loved when the Jets got Sam Darnold two years ago. Guess what? He's gone already. I mean, I, I, I hated when I did the draft, they'd always give us, who did you like? What draft picks, what teams did you really like that made out well? I'm like, who the hell knows? We won't know until three or four years. So it's all just fodder to feed the machine. And the NFL does that better than anyone. They play the long game, chef's kiss to perfection, but nobody really knows. And that to me is why the draft is so great. It's a crapshoot. Even those people that do it for a living and break down this and break down that come to the realization they hit 50% of the time. And I think that's why they do so much work. Because if it fails, at least they can say, look, he had this height, this weight, ran this 40 time, had these arms, these hands. He ticked all the boxes. But I don't know why it didn't work. You know, it's really funny, J Trey, because I had Joe Banner, uh, the former longtime Eagles and Browns team president, on the Ross Tucker podcast recently. And I guess, I think it was a Jimmy Johnson study where... Like the difference between the best drafting teams, right? Like whoever the teams are that draft the best and the worst, it's only a few percentage points. Like to your point, it's like the best hit on like 52% and the worst are like 48%. So that's obviously significant, right? It's a small margin business, 4%. But the point is, it's not like none of these teams are hitting at a 75% clip. And most of them aren't so bad. They're at a 25% clip. Like they're all in that same kind of 50, 50 range. So what you really want a lot of times is a volume of draft picks. Like the more you have, the better. And it gives you a chance because even if you hit on the same percentage, the more selections you had, then the more of them are going to end up being good players for you. You can really whiff on a first round pick and still have a really good draft, in my opinion, based on everything else that happens. But you mentioned the Browns, so I have to tell this story. Cameron Jordan has been a stalwart defensive end for the Saints ever since he was drafted in the first round in 2011. But after he was drafted in the first round in 2011, he got a call from the Cleveland Browns, who at that time were the Cincinnati Bengals that you referred to earlier. Terrible. Uh, and they were calling to say, hey, we're getting ready to draft you. And he was like, uh, I'm good, bro. I, I've already been drafted in the first round by the Saints. So, like, if you want to draft me, give me two signing bonuses, I'll take it. They were, trying, <laughs> they, they were trying to reach Jordan Cameron, the tight end out of USC. <laughs> Instead, they called Cameron Jordan and said that they were going to draft him. And if, if nothing capsulated what the Browns were around 2011, that mess up might have done it. You know, what's funny about it is I do remember them all calling up to check and make sure they had the right information for you. So for me, it was like 2001, okay? My parents had just gotten me my first cell phone the month before. So I had my dorm room phone and my cell phone there as I'm watching it. And I'll never forget getting called in the first round by the Bengals. And I answer the phone and I'm like, Hello? And they're like, oh, yeah, this is Cincinnati Bengals. And I'm thinking, first round, let's go. I'm ready to be a Bengal, which obviously I knew they weren't saying that. But they just said, hey, we're really high on you. And if you don't get picked, by the way, I knew I wasn't going to get picked. My agent, Trey, uh, Joe Linta, he's got like I know Joe, Joe Flacco, yeah. Kyle Eustach, yeah. Cambray, yeah. a lot of the Ivy League guys, right? He's a Connecticut guy. He said to me, it was 50-50 whether or not I would even get signed. Like, forget drafted. 50-50 whether I'd even get a shot. So it was just funny. Only one team ever called me during the draft, the Bengals. And they called me twice. They called me Saturday and they called me Sunday. And I'll never forget my agent, Joe, he had said to me, Trey, the longer it takes for me to call you after the draft, 
the worse the sign is, right? So I sat there the whole time, whatever. I sat around for an hour after the draft and never heard from him. So now it's like, it's Sunday at like seven o'clock. I'm starving. All my roommates are out at the eating club, the eating club, okay? They're all out there eating, drinking, hanging out. Meanwhile, they had partied every night all semester. I got up at 6 a.m., 5 a.m., whatever, to train for the Rutgers Pro Day and stuff. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Oh my, I, I just wasted the best semester of my life. I, I, I cannot believe this. So I finally go out there to the eating club because I'm starving. I, I, I tried to eat. I couldn't even eat like a hot dog. I couldn't. I, I, I was they were looking at me. They could tell by my face not to talk with me. So I, I couldn't do it. So I, I go back to my dorm room. As I'm walking up the steps, I hear the phone ringing. So I sprint up the steps of my dorm. I grab it, and it's Joe Linta. And he's like, I'm like, hello? He's like, Ross. I said, yeah. He said, where were you? I've been calling you. I said, you told me the longer it took, the worse sign it was. So I figured I wasn't getting signed. He's like, well, you're wrong. You're the newest member of the Washington Redskins at the time, 2001, which was unbelievable. So, Trey, I, I, I talked to him for two minutes. I sprint right back out to the eating club. I go into the back to the courtyard where all of my buddies are and all the girls, everybody, and I put both fingers up. I'm like, Redskins, Washington, whatever. <laughs> all my buddies were all jumping up and down. Like, it was – it went from, like, in literally like a 15-minute period – from like the lowest of lows to the highest of highs. And I got, I got a $0 and zero cent signing bonus. The kid, that, the kid that was my roommate in rookie minicamp from Northern Iowa, he got a $5,000 signing bonus. He was terrible. They cut him right after the first minicamp. I was like, $5,000, can I get his money? Like he <laughs> said to me the first night, Trey, we're in the hotel room. He's like, man, these taxes. It's terrible. And I was like, yeah, yeah, horrible. Taxes, yeah. Tell me about it. I literally hadn't even gotten a signing bonus. I, I, I didn't know anything about it. So anyway, that's my uh, that's my draft day story. Nothing says uh, more Princeton education like an eating club. So it's a nice <laughs> on your card. Solid flex there. Real quickly, I'll tell this one story about Andrew Brandt told me once when he was negotiating with a player, an undrafted free agent. They're trying to sign, and they said the signing bonus will be like twenty five hundred bucks. And the player said, "Well, I don't have that on me right now, but can I get it to you?" He thought he had to pay them to sign instead of them paying him to be a part of the team. So the draft is always a little strange; it's a little weird, but that's what makes it fun. And we'll see what happens as it all plays out. Ross, always good to talk to you, my friend. Be well. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Always good to catch up with Ross. Hope to talk to him and see him very uh, soon in the near future. And thanks to Chargers GM Tom Telesco. Speaking of the Chargers, a very special guest on next week's episode of Half Forgotten History. He was the second overall pick of the San Diego Chargers in 1998. Some have called him the greatest bust in the history of the NFL draft. I would disagree with that on a variety of levels. But so would he. Through his journey through football, addiction, and now sobriety, he has found meaning in life and things that make him proud, including his NFL career. I'm talking about none other than Ryan Leaf. A very special conversation next week on Half Forgotten History.